Today's reading is Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet, their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing to the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we've begun the year 2017 kind of going through this this year-long theme which we've called the beautiful risk. The idea of seeing where love takes us. This risk of of loving, um, loving God, loving each other, loving people to see where it takes us. And and we've said that, that this, like umbrella risk kind of contains within it some few like a couple primary risks and the first risk was letting God love us and we spent all of January and February um, talking through the different ways that we might let God love us like the love that he wants to show how might we have lives that are open to that love and in this month we really wanted to focus on the idea of, of loving God and loving neighbor and not really divorcing those two because I don't think that the scriptures let us that to love God is to love others, to love our neighbor. And to love our neighbor, by doing that, we are also um, loving God. And so and it brings to mind the commandment, the, the words of Jesus that we all know in Matthew 22, um, verses 36 through 40. It says, Teacher, they're asking Jesus this, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. And last week, Lou talked about this idea of commandments as not being something that's oppressive, but rather something like God's desire is to bring us into a maturity of faith. That when God is asking something of us, he is is doing so that we might be people who are mature in our faith. And that loving each other, loving God, is to bring us into that maturity. And so I kind of want to continue in that theme of talking about 
about God's law and how loving our neighbor is really involved in what God wants for us um, as his people. And so I'm going to take us through, like the Bible, uh, and the, what God has said, maybe throughout history, in the Old Testament, even the New Testament, and how loving our neighbor is really so significant to the narrative and story of Scripture. And that's why we started with Psalm 19. I love that psalm so much because you have it beginning right with this amazing praise over, over the creation and over all the earth and what God has done and, and, and how he is, he's set um, the sun in the sky. And it, so it starts with this, this praise over creation and then it moves into this praise over the law. Over this law that God has given to his people, this, this prayer begins to thank God for what he's given to them in the law. And he says a few things, just to quickly highlight, in verses 7 through 10, he says that the law is refreshing. The law is trustworthy. The law gives joy. The law is radiant, and it's more precious than gold. See, the idea of Israel, or the, the idea, the idea of the, of the law that Israel had was not this idea of, oh, okay, well now it's, here's this thing that God has given to us so that we might make sure that we don't make him angry. Nor was it, I think, I don't, this is my personal understanding of this, is I don't think the law was also given to Israel or to people so that they could actually see how bad they are and how much they need God. I think that the law was given to the people of Israel and why they were able to receive it as gift is because now God has given them the way that they are to live in this covenant relationship with God. The law has been given to them so that they might actually know and see what it's like to live in the way that God would have the world to be. So when the law is reframed in that way, of course it would be something that's received as gift. Something that would be worthy to praise and to be grateful for. And it's within this understanding of the law that we can actually understand loving our neighbor is not something that God has given to us so that we might not make him angry, but rather something that he's given to us so that we might live in the way that God has intended. If you want, you can open your Bibles to Leviticus 19, which I bet you didn't think you'd come to church and we'd be looking at Leviticus. Because who does that? Um... So in Leviticus 19, Leviticus is really like kind of this outworking of the law of God. And we're just going to spend a little bit of time here before moving on. But I want to just show how central to God's law is our interactions with our neighbor. So I'm just going to start simply in in, in verse 9. So Leviticus, Leviticus 19, verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest... You shall not strip your vineyard bare or gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. And you shall not lie to one another. And you shall not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of the Lord. Because I am the Lord. You shall not defraud your neighbor. You shall not steal. You shall not keep for yourself the wages of a laborer until, until morning. You shall not revile the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall not render an unjust judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. With justice you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not profit by the blood of your neighbor. I am the Lord. 
You shall not hate in your heart any one of your kin. You shall, not re- or you shall reprove your neighbor, or you will incur guilt yourself. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I mean, lest we think that, that God's law and what he intended for the people of Israel is just kind of old hat and something we can throw away. I mean, this seems very, very specific and practical for us today. That God is concerned in his law of how we deal with one another. To love God and to follow his ways is to love our neighbor. Is to deal justly, not falsely. To not slander. To actually, when we reap our fields and when we gather our food, leave a little extra on the edges for the poor and for the aliens so they too can eat. Again, you shall love your neighbor. Again, you shall love your enemies and not bear grudge against anyone. But love your neighbor because I am the Lord. So anytime you see Jesus saying in the Gospels to love your neighbor, or when you read in the book of James, to love your neighbor as yourself, it is referring back to Leviticus, to God's law, to what God gave to his people so that they might live in the way God intended. And why is this something that God has given us to do? Because God's vision for the world is one where we, together, as his people, are pursuing justice and being for each other. And it's encased in this word called shalom. That God's vision for the world is one of shalom. So what is shalom? Here's a quote from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Shalom means completeness, perfection. The harmonious working of a complex system, integrated diversity, a state in which everything is in its proper place and all is at one with the physical and ethical laws governing the universe. This is a concept of peace, heavily dependent on the vision of Genesis 1 in which God brings order out of chaos, creating a world in which each object and life form has its place. Peace exists where each element in the system is valued as a vital part of the system as a whole and where there is no discord between them. It's peace. It's justice. Shalom is things working the way that they're supposed to work. And this is God's vision for the world. And it's out of this type of vision that the commandment, the law to love your neighbor is is actually embedded. Because when we love each other, we're living into the vision of the world. And the vision that God has for the world, this vision of shalom is one that God, that was broken at the beginning of time in Genesis 1 because people chose to live their own way instead of God's way. But then it's something that God, throughout history, as we see in Scripture, is wanting to pursue, is this vision of peace and justice, and that we see at the end of time in Revelation, it will one day be when God makes all things new. See, the vision of the prophets, as they are talking to the people of Israel, they're saying, this is the way the world is going to be. If you look at Isaiah 2, it says, disputes will be settled, swords will be beaten to plowshares, spears into pruning hooks, and there will be no more war or training for war. And then in Isaiah 11, it says, the wolf will lay down with the lamb and the wolf with the goat, calf and the lion together, led by a child. That image to me is remarkable. A calf and a lion together, led by a child. 
Young child will not be harmed by snakes nor see them as a threat, or earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. This is the vision that God has, that all things that are broken will be made right, that wars will be no more. Weapons will not exist because they won't need to. Racism will be forgotten. Oppression will be a thing of the past, and freedom and life and flourishing will be the norm. When God makes all things new, that is what will be. That is God's vision for the world. And we actually have a part to play, and we can participate in living into that when we begin to love our neighbor. I mean, that's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing that we can actually step into what God will do when we love each other and when we love our neighbor. And by doing that, we then love God and the way that the world is supposed to be will be. And as the people of God, we are called to live into it now. We are called to participate in embodying and reflecting the way the world will be. In Micah 6, 6 through 8, I'm going to read it. You can turn there if you want. It says, With what shall I come before the Lord? The people, the prophets asking God, um, what, what do you want from us? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted, exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? So you better listen up. He's shown you what is good and what the Lord will require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What does the Lord require of you? Three things, and the first two have directly to deal with how we treat one another. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That is, those are the things that are to, to define the people of God. N.T. Wright puts it this way, What we can know and do know is that we're called to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God. The point of justice and mercy is not they deserve it, but rather this is the way God's world should be and we are called to do those things that truly anticipate the way God's world will be. We are called to do things to anticipate the way that God's world will be. So when you are looking out for someone who doesn't have the tools or the capacity or the opportunity to look out for themselves, you are anticipating the way that God's world will be. When you, maybe who are a teacher who's, who's spending a little extra time for a student who's just not able to get some sort of concept and is really struggling with their grades and their classes, you, by spending time with that person, is anticipating the way God's world will be. When you, who are a parent or a mother and are so frustrated with your children and you want to just pull your hair out or you want to throw them through the window or you want to do whatever it is you do and you decide not to do that, but you, you actually decide to kind of move toward them in love and to be gracious and maybe to encourage and to teach 
that is anticipating the way that God's world will be. When you, someone who's stressed with work, maybe staying really late at the office, and you just have so much to get done, but there's that one coworker who you're just like, don't talk to me. I just don't have time for this. But somehow, you give that person a listening ear, and you look them in the eyes, and you spend just that little bit of time with them, because you trust in God's economy that there's just enough time to do what God has called us to do, you are anticipating the way God's world will be. I mean, all our lives, we have the opportunity every day, every moment to anticipate the way God's world will be, and we have the opportunity to live into God's vision for the world, which is shalom. But what gets in the way of that? What gets in the way of living into God's vision for the world? And I think it's very simple. What it was for the people of Israel is what it is for us. It's this idea of of self-interest, of this self-aggrandizement. I mean, one of the reasons, of the many reasons, why the people of Israel, God actually exiled them, is because they, they failed to fulfill the law of loving their neighbor. If you look at many of the reasons why they were thrown into exiles, because they actually, instead of helping the oppressed, they became the oppressors. Instead of giving to one another, they began to covet each other's things. Instead of of taking care of the fatherless and the widow and the alien, they started to take advantage of those who were weak and didn't have families or homes. Because of this self-interest, because of this self-aggrandizement, what actually happens is we distort the narrative that God is telling. Because when we, we, we put ourselves at the center of the narrative, all of a sudden it becomes our story. So every person around me is disposable, depending on what they provide or offer me and my story. But the beautiful thing about God's story, which begins in Genesis 1, is God's like, no, 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 no. This is, I'm telling the story. I'm at the center of the narrative. All of us, you actually have an incredibly high calling because you were made in my image. But let's not forget you are not me. I am me, you are you, and you are all of you. That's the crazy thing. It's not just I was created in God's image, and sorry, sorry guys, um, (laughs) you're not. Uh, No, I'm created in God's image. You're created in God's image. People who look differently from me, who were born in a different country than I am, who have actually different religious beliefs than I do, we're all made in God's image. We're actually all given dignity. But we only will show one another dignity, and we will only give each other the worth that we actually have as human persons if we believe that God is at the center of the story. Because that will never happen if I'm at the center of the story. Because in my story, I'm created in God's image, and I actually have the full measure of God's image, and everyone else, bummer. (laughs) So what gets in the way is this this self-interest, this self-aggrandizement. 
And so then what's the way forward? And I just wanted to offer that there are three, three things that we kind of need to have moving forward. And it's this, a larger vision, a willingness to look, and the courage to act. If we're going to move forward into the image that God has given to us, the image that God himself has for the world that he is moving toward, we need a larger vision. We need God's vision for the world. We need to have our imagination captivated by the story God has been telling and is telling and will tell. That is what needs to permeate our minds and that needs to be the thing by which we, we begin to have cultivate our desires and our values and our interactions with our neighbors and with the people around us. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says this, The vision of the biblical way affirms that communal well-being comes by living God's dream and not by idolatrous self-aggrandizement. Jesus' ministry to the excluded was the same. The establishment of community between those who were excluded and those who excluded them. His acts of healing the sick, forgiving the guilty, raising the dead, and feeding the hungry are all actions of reestablishing God's will for shalom in a world gone chaotic by callous self-seeking. Jesus himself offers us a picture of what it means to pursue and to live into the vision God has for the world. Bringing those who are excluded in. Going toward those who are sick. Offering prayers for those who need to experience the wholeness and the healing work of God. I mean, we have a part to play, but we will only play that part if it's God's vision that permeates our world, our life, our thinking. And we need to have a willingness to look. We actually just need to open our eyes and look around. And we need to be honest. We need to, we need to look around and we need to ask the question, where is there no shalom? Where does there need to be peace? And we need to name those things, and then we need to have the courage to actually act. And by God's power and his spirit to bring shalom, to bring peace, to bring healing. And the courage to actually do it. I recently watched, I watched a film this week um, called The White Helmets. And it's a 40-minute documentary, and it, so it's not long, and it, was, it won Best Documentary Short. Uh, and it's one of, the, one of the more powerful things I watched, and um, you'll need Kleenex next to you when you're watching it. The story is basically about, about these, these groups of civilians in Aleppo, Syria. So this, cra- this place ravaged by war and bombings and, and, and constantly undergoing turmoil. I mean, buildings are, are being blown up and, and, and collapsing and leveled all the time. Well, a group of civilians have got together and they decided to do something about it. They decided to actually be the first responders when things blew up so that they can begin to pull bodies, people who are alive, people who are dead, out of the rubble. They don't get paid for it. They all had previous jobs. This is just something they volunteered to do. What's crazy is these people live in this place where there is utter tragedy. 
They look around and, and they, they, it seems so hopeless. But then these group of civilians actually become the hope in this hopeless place. They have a vision of, of what it means to be people and human beings and to be for one another. I mean, here's just a few quotes from the people who do this, who are part of this white, white helmet, helmets civilian defense. They say any human being, no matter who they are or which side they're on, if they need help, it's our duty to save them. Once one of them said, I try to save everyone under the rubble, whether young or old, because I consider them all my family. I'm like, what a vision for the world. That, that, they, that doesn't matter who they are or which side they're on. If they need their help, these people are there. And they're the first ones there. And they're able to, to, to work together and to actually begin to pull bodies out of, out of the rubble so that those, who, those people who are dead, the families, can actually mourn. But those who are still alive can actually still live life. I mean, it's an incredible story. And it's an amazing story. And, and as I was thinking about it, I'm like, wow. Like, we don't, that's not happening to us. That's not our story. It's not our world. But we can look around, and we can see utter tragedy around us. There are people in this community who are sick, who are dying. There are people in Long Beach who don't have homes, who don't have, have anything, any way, any tools to be able to get themselves food. We have children in our society who need to be loved because they're abandoned or they, their parents don't actually have the proper tools to be able to take care of them. I mean, there are so many things. If we, just, if we just had a larger vision of what God wants for the world and a willingness to look and to see, then we would begin to know that we actually have the opportunity to be a blessing, to be hope where there is none. Like, that is actually what God has called the church to do, is to embody and reflect his love, his hope, in a world where there is none. We are called to be a light in a world that seems so dark. I mean, that is, that is what we do, and that is what God is calling us to do. And that is the gift that we have as the church to offer the world. That is our calling. I had a, a professor, I'm going to end with a story. His name was John Golden Gate, and he's an Old Testament um, professor, and his wife, who died like five years ago, uh, had MS, and she struggled with MS for a long time. And, and for the last few years, like long few years of her life, she, she didn't have any function, like any no bodily function whatsoever. And, and John, an Old Testament professor, was, he, would just, he, would, he would teach and he'd take care of his wife. And he, he told me this story, because we became friends, and he told me the story once of, of how he, he always wanted to do more for his wife, Anne. And, and he, he just couldn't, because she couldn't do much. He said he started getting into this practice where he would like take her, and he lives in Pasadena, he would take her out, um, and, and they would go get ice cream together. Uh, and, of course, he's the one eating ice cream, you know, but with her. And, and he's, he would begin to say that he, it became this habit where he would like um, push her in, a, in her wheelchair and almost make it like a game. And he doesn't, like, there's, he doesn't know how she's experiencing it. I mean, there's no, like, response. 
Um, but he's, it's his attempt in this moment to love her. And so he'd like, he would like push her like down a hill and act like, oh no, like we're losing control. And then he'd like kind of, he'd just like make, like make, make, not make fun, but he would make this moment fun for them. And, and he would say this thing, and not just with this story, but all the time, that's always stuck with me. And he's like, you know, and you tell this class this, he's like, you know, doing that, it's not enough. But it's not nothing. And so he would constantly make that remark. Because I think that for me, I think, man, there's just so much to do. Right? Think of the white helmets, guys. There's just so much to do. There, there's so many bodies they're not going to be able to uncover. There's so many people who are going to be stuck and actually going to die where they are. There's so many kids in the foster care system who aren't going to have homes. There are so many people in Long Beach who aren't going to be able to have money um, or get the food they need or have the shelter that, that they deserve. That's just a reality. There's, we can't do enough. But what we do is not nothing. Like we have the opportunity to actually move and step into and live into the vision that God has for the world. And in whatever way that we're able to, and whatever way God is calling us to, and whatever way that we actually have the courage to step into that, that's not nothing. And therefore, it's actually an opportunity to give the world a glimpse of the wonderful vision of shalom that God has for the world and will actually make come to pass. But we can participate in it now. Thanks be to God.